All right, all right. That's the foghorn. You know what it means. It's the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the Merc and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, 2022, the year in review. We're joined by noted naval commentators Brian Clark and Jerry Hendricks to take a look at what went well for the U.S. Navy in 2022, what didn't do as well, and what to look for in 2023. It's a great discussion. We hope you'll enjoy. But first, a look at this week's naval news. 19 people fell into the water December 13th when a utility boat being hoisted by crane aboard the U.S. Navy hospital ship Comfort tipped over while about 20 feet in the air. Two Navy sailors reportedly suffered minor injuries in the incident, which was captured by at least two video cameras. The Comfort was at Jeremy Haiti, where its embarked medical personnel were providing care during the ship's continuing promised deployment to the Caribbean and Central America region. Chinese Navy ships continued this past week to pass through Japanese home island waterways, and Russian military aircraft flew near Japan's territorial airspace, Japan's self-defense forces reported. Continuing provocations by China, Russia, and North Korea are being cited as the basis for Japan's drastic revisions in its national security strategy. The country announced December 16th it was increasing military spending to about 2% of its gross national product in response to China's, quote, rising military aggression. Japan already is converting its two largest helicopter carriers into aircraft carriers able to operate F-35B joint strike fighters. Speaking of joint strike fighters, a Lockheed Martin-owned F-35B joint strike fighter crashed December 15th while attempting to touch down at the Fort Worth, Texas airfield shared by the company's JSF production facility and Naval Air Station Joint Reserve Base Fort Worth. The pilot, identified by the Pentagon only as a government employee, ejected during the incident. The aircraft's intended customer was not publicly identified. USNI News reported December 16th that long-lead procurement orders for two new Virginia-class submarines are being held up due to a dispute between the Navy and General Dynamics Electric Boat. At issue is a disagreement as to which organization should be financially responsible if an accident occurs involving Tomahawk cruise missiles, whether during construction or in operation. The issue stems from a 2018 Navy decision to lift its liability protections. The Navy decision also affects Lockheed Martin and production of the still under development conventional prompt strike hypersonic missile. Late on December 15th, Congress passed the 2023 Defense Authorization Act, which we discussed in some detail last week. The bill, which focuses on policies and programs and authorizes but does not actually provide funding, comes two and a half months after the expiration of fiscal 2022. Next up for the Hill is the Defense Appropriations Act, the actual money for the Department of Defense. As of this recording, it's expected the Appropes Act will be rolled into a huge omnibus bill to fund the U.S. government through fiscal 2023, the last time your U.S. Congress completed all of its appropriations work on time was in 1996. And in new ship news, Secretary of the Navy Carlos del Toro announced December 13th that the next big amphibious assault ship would honor Marines who fought in Fallujah, Iraq in 2004. The actions were considered the bloodiest engagements of the Iraq War. USS Fallujah, LHA-6, will be an America-class assault ship built at Ingalls Shipbuilding. 
And also at Ingalls, the future USS Jack H. Lucas, DDG-125, got underway December 12th to begin Alpha Builders Trials. The first Flight 3 ship is fitted with the new Spy-6 phased array radar from Raytheon that replaces the Spy-3D radar array of previous Arleigh-Burke-class destroyers. Lucas is expected to be delivered to the U.S. Navy in 2023. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right. We will switch to the discussion portion of the podcast. And we are very lucky today to be joined by Dr. Jerry Hendricks, the president of Hendricks and Associates, and Brian Clark, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, uh, friends of the pod, Sea uh, Power super friends, if you will. What Chris and I thought we would do for this week was the year in review. Let's look back at 2022 and talk about the good, the bad, the other. Um, and then if we have time, maybe get their takes on what to expect in the first quarter for 23. So, uh, Jerry, Brian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's jump right in. I'll start with Jerry. Um, your take on the good for the Naval Service for maritime issues over the uh, past year. What uh, stood out to you as something that you were happy to see in 2022? Well, I, I was happy to see the Congress sort of step up this year and take a more assertive role in uh, providing and maintaining the Navy, as is their constitutional duty. I think that there was overall frustration and a bipartisan frustration uh, that the administration had not put forward a budget to sufficiently sort of grow and maintain the Navy. And so the Congress, uh, with both Democrats and Republicans together, uh, stepped up in the House Armed Services Committee and then on appropriations and then over in the Senate to actually do that uh, so that there was adequate funding rather than really uh, dramatically slashing the Navy. The Navy is still going to get smaller, but it's not getting as small or as quickly. Uh, and it's begun to allocate resources towards both growth of the Navy and then um, most importantly, perhaps the material maintenance of the fleet, uh, making deeper investments in, in ship maintenance and repair. So I thought it was good to actually see uh, the Congress return to this role. Uh, this is something that's cyclic. We've seen the Congress step up and do this at other historical times, and we seem to be in that era where Congress is leading. I'll just note that uh, Jerry just made a, a shameless plug for his book, which I will plug for him to provide and maintain a Navy, which is available on Amazon uh, <laughs> or your favorite bookstore. Also, I, so I will, I'll echo what uh, Jerry said, because I, I think the Congress really stepped up and showed the leadership and sort of the long-term vision that is kind of lacking when it comes to the Navy leadership itself. Um, and I think the other thing, though, that we've seen that's a, that's a real, uh, I guess, bright, bright spot in the Navy this year is the reinvigoration of experimentation, um, the real effort to try to give uh, PAC fleet what they need in terms of uh, capabilities and new operational concepts. So uh, I think there's a lot of effort starting that's going to drive the Navy in a direction of maybe redesigning its approach to operations to focus on creating uncertainty for China. So a lot of thought and a lot of experimentation happening, which is all to the good. Uh, I think when we get to the bads, we can talk about the lack of impl implementation, you know, for those new concepts. But I think that's one of the areas where I've seen a lot of um, new energy, you know, that's been really helpful. Chris Cavus, I'll ask you. Uh, you. You can jump in. I mean, anything that caught your attention in terms of the good for the Navy? The good for the U.S. Navy was probably the shakedown deployment of USS Badass which is how the Times of London referred to the Gerald R. Ford. Um, uh, we've all been waiting for this for many, many years. You see, Jerry's, Jerry's shaking his head at that one. And, you know, in, in the U.S., we tend to focus on all the negative aspects of just about anything. 
The media certainly does because it's so much, every, number one, everything has problems, nothing doesn't. Uh, and it's much easier to talk about things that are wrong and not going well, rather than the, and nobody really trusts it when you talk about anything that's going, that is going well. But from foreign eyes, you know, that, that ship finally did, a, it, was a, it was a brief deployment, seven weeks, shakedown deployment, but an international task group um, went to Canada, went to Halifax, and then went over and stopped in uh, Portsmouth, England. Um, where, where the Brits and everybody in Europe, really all the naval correspondents, anybody who was anybody in, in Europe wanted to go see the ship. And they were totally wowed. They were blown away. So we look at that as just an endless bunch of problems and you know, risk retirement and all this. But over there from, from outside, sometimes it does. I mean, the Times of London called it USS Badass. That's, that, that, I mean, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't one of the tabloids. I'm sorry. That's just, you know, you can shake your head all you want. It's not perfect. Nothing ever is. It's going to take years to really shake out all the systems, just like every new system. But uh, that was a major accomplishment. It really was. And I think it's overlooked in this country what that ship uh, brings to, to carrier air wings and the future for carrier, carrier aviation. On the other side, the same thing, carrier aviation, but a different sort of thing. The deployment of the lightning carrier USS Tripoli, extremely interesting single first deployment for a ship. It was an independent deployment to Western Pacific out of San Diego. She embarked uh, Marine Corps F-35Bs that are uh, based in Japan. Um, really operated throughout the the, uh, the South China Sea and the Western Pacific for several months. Except, I mean, really got the Chinese attention. A whole new element for Marine Air that they've never really had before. Of course, the other, her sister ship America is based in Japan. And this is just a whole element that is, um, that it's a, it's a new dimension for marine aviation at sea that will continue with the follow-on ships, Bougainville and Fallujah. You know, just to jump in there, I think you know, Chris brings up a couple of great points. One is, you know, this idea of experimentation. I think the, you know, the use of the Lightning Carrier and its conjunction with, you know, some traditional carriers was really helpful. Um, and also the idea of operating with allies in a much more integrated fashion is something we saw this year. So the Ford deployment was a good example of that. The uh, deployment of the America as well as other carriers in the the Pacific alongside their Japanese and. Uh, 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 Japanese and um, Indian counterparts um, in some cases. So I think there's a lot of activity on the experimentation front that, that should be heralded, you know, and it's just a matter of how do we actually take advantage. And then, um, and then there's, there's the war. So on the, on, in, in the bigger picture, we have a war that few anticipated happening in the way that it happened and at the timing that it happened. But the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine in uh, February 24th has unleashed a level of combat, certainly in Europe, that hasn't been seen since World War II. And conflict at sea, um, the Russians have been using um, and continue to use uh, significant elements of shore bombardment with caliber missiles, cruise missiles. Um, the, and then this comes from any, any, almost any, any uh, combatant platform, including small combatants and submarines. And then, of course, their largest ship, the Slava, was sunk. Uh, by, by by Ukraine attack. What what do both of you um, make of that? I mean, there there's just so much, you know. Obviously, this is a this is an experimentation festival, if you will, a boon of of a real world experience that's going on um, in major ways on on any number of levels. 
Um, and Jerry, start with you. What do you what do you take out of the war so far? What's what's, what's really jumping at you? Well, I, I, the thing I took out of the war so far is that Russian assumptions about its ability to uh, provide sea control, that the Black Sea was theirs, that it was maneuver space, right. I think was really quickly taken away from them. Um, they, they tried to position an amphibious force uh, to do a massive landing. Uh, they realized that that was going to be opposed. It was too much of a risk. They lost the Slava, which was huge. Uh, for them, because it was one of their their fleet flagships, it's one of their most combat capable. You know, by the book, if we just pull out Jane's and combat fleets of the world, it was supposed to be one of their most combat capable ships. Uh, in reality, it was not uh, a combat capable ship. Um, you know, or the crew was training and maintenance was not up to spec. And and we saw that training and maintenance aspect of things coming into play across the entire campaign that assumptions that were made about the land forces didn't hold up, the assumptions made about the air forces didn't hold up, uh, assumptions about the Navy didn't hold up. And in fact, you know, assumptions about the quality of their leadership, um, you know, didn't hold up. I'll tell you, the other thing that didn't hold up was flag officers. Um, you know, the ability of the Ukrainians to be able to pick off Russian flag officers, colonels, generals, and, you know, uh, was, was really quite amazing. And so, this was a, a huge setback uh, to Vladimir Putin and to his military. Uh, but you're correct in that we should look at this in much the same way I think we looked at the 1973 Arab-Israeli war as probably a prime experimental lab where a lot of new ideas, new missiles, new uh, C4I concepts. Lord knows when we'll find out what's going on in, in terms of SOF. Uh, but this has been a, a really huge laboratory uh, I hate to say that in, in one sense, because the Ukrainian people are paying with blood for the experiments that are ongoing, but we in the West are learning an awful lot about the future of war uh, in great power competition. Yeah, I'll, um, and I'll add to what Jerry said, which I agree with, is uh, it showed us the, that um, you know, even one or two weapons getting through to a ship are going to neutralize it, or, and if you do terrible damage control, it's going to sink it. So it shows the vulnerability of capital ships to attacks that will eventually overwhelm their defenses. You know, so you can talk about swarms or you can just talk about you know, large salvos, but it, the Slava and the other cases of uh, you know, Russian ships being sunk are all examples of how it doesn't take very much to put a ship out of action at the very least. Um, it also showed, the, the war in general has showed the value of you know, the small and many uh, versus the large and capable, but few. Um, and, and I think you know, the most recent use of drones uh, alongside uh, traditional missiles to attack uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, as well as you know, the use of uh, un unmanned surface vehicles to attack uh, Ukrainian ships, rather Russian ships by the Ukrainians, um, shows that you know this this advent of drone warfare is going to change um, the dynamic of the large versus the small. And we need to really think about you know when we talk about distributed maritime operations, we need to do it at a scale that the Navy is not really thinking about yet with the U.S. Navy. Um, but clearly, it's, that's the direction that things are going to have to go because uh, Ukraine is showing us that you can be pretty effective if you just are able to launch a large number of relatively cheap things uh, at your opponent, because eventually one of them is going to get through and your big expensive thing is going to be out of action for a, a while at least. So let's move over to the bad. Um, what disappointed you um, across the maritime environment? What do you wish had happened differently? Um, Brian, we'll start with you this time. I mean, what what would you put into the the bad category? 
Well, um, yeah, and uh, I'll let Jerry talk to the overall force structure ideas, but the Navy's uh, budget submission, I think, was you know, pretty disappointing in that it was presuming that we were going to shrink the fleet in an effort to eventually field some new technologies that you know, might, in the end, you know, get us an advantage. Um, but uh, in general, this strategy of doing that doesn't seem to make, doesn't seem to comport with the you know, recent statements by the CNO and others that we're going to have to deal with a Taiwan crisis in the next year or two. Uh, so this idea of, of mortgaging today for the benefit of tomorrow doesn't make sense if you think the problem is going to be a today problem. Uh, but then beside that, uh, this idea of you know experimentation and new ideas and new concepts that are being uh, pursued. Uh, we talked about the lightning carrier, um, unmanned uh, integrated battle problem, uh, the large scale experiment, which you know was a, a variable uh, utility. Um, the work that's being done in Northern Edge and and. Uh, uh, Valiant Shield and Nimble Viking to experiment with unmanned systems were all great uh, advantages, or I guess great successes in terms of de determining ways that you can use unmanned systems in viable operational concepts. The problem is the Navy hasn't implemented any of those through the actual fielding, acquisition and fielding of unmanned systems at the scale you need to, to do them. I mean, you talk to uh, Admiral Paparo and he says, I need you know 50 or 100 of these medium unmanned surface vessels, not two. Um, and I was just out at San Diego last week and went down and looked at Sea Hunter and Seahawk. They're not doing very much right now. They're being used to test other people's stuff as opposed to being used to develop new operational concepts and capabilities. So the whole effort at fielding unmanned systems at scale is just moribund and we need to somehow reinvigorate it, um, especially when you look at Ukraine and say these systems are going to be could be decisive, but you need them in the kinds of numbers that the Navy's not yet contemplating, um, although in its force structure assessments, it keeps saying it needs them. So I think that's probably one of the biggest disappointments is just a lot of great thinking going on, but it's not carrying through to any implementation. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for that, which we can dig into if you want. Um, but yeah. that's probably to me the, the biggest disappointment. I do want to pull on that if you don't mind. I mean, why why yeah. is that? Is that a culture issue? Is it a money issue? Is it a priority issue? Is it a combination of, of, of all three? I mean, you, you know, we, all of us have spent a, a large chunk of our career writing and thinking about this problem set. We kind of thought we'd be a little bit further along to, to your point. What has prevented that? Well, it, you know, su surprisingly, I guess we're, so we're doing some studies on this right now, but uh, it turns out, I don't think culture is really the problem. I think, you know, originally we thought, well, you know, the manned, you know, com you know platform community doesn't want unmanned systems to come in and take their territory. It's not really that. I think the, the manned platform community is embracing concepts that use unmanned systems and they recognize that this it's a team arrangement. It's not one or the other. Um, and, uh, but the problem seems to be like, it just sort of breaks down because we don't have any mechanisms to allow this process, the, the development uh, of these, these new systems uh, to be proceeded very quickly. So for example, um, we do these experiments to look at how unmanned surface vessels can do sensing and targeting and counter ISR or jamming and, and decoy operations. Um, there's great ideas there. We've developed some concepts. There's no process really for that to be conveyed back to the PEO, the acquisition community to say, adjust your requirements to you know fit with these operational concepts that we just used in the field. So we figured out a way to use them. If you can make them meet these, you know, kind of bare minimum requirements, they're good. Send them our way. There's no mechanism to make that feedback back loop happen. So the acquisition community is proceeding to develop these systems towards these sort of requirements built in isolation that are fairly ambitious. They're going to take a long time to actually uh, achieve. 
um, there's no way to actually, it's almost a DevOps cycle, you know, kind of where the ops community says, this is good enough, give it to me. The dev community says, well, I, I don't have any mechanism to tell me that that's acceptable and that I could proceed without somebody yelling at me from Congress or from OSD. So we don't need, we don't have that cycle built yet. And then when it comes to the money side, a lot of these concepts require money from multiple platform sponsors. So different resource sponsors in the Pentagon need to get together and invest in them. They don't, don't want to do that because the surface guys don't want to pay for something that benefits the submarine guys and et cetera. So there's, there's no mechanism to do that. I think those are probably the two biggest things is the lack of a DevOps cycle and the lack of a funding mechanism that can go across platform sponsors. Jerry, let's go to you. Thoughts on what Brian shared, um, but also well, your just, thoughts on the, on the bad across yeah. the uh, you know, maritime space. What didn't we get right in 22? Let, let me just say uh, and uh, align my my uh, uh, endorse what Brian just said and, and say why so many of us in the navalist community admire him for his analysis because I thought that was a, a an extremely good concise overview of the challenges of trying to integrate unmanned. I perhaps per placed more emphasis on culture. I think uh, I think culture is uh, causing issues uh, specifically in naval aviation. Uh, where the, the the space on the carrier deck is is viewed not only as competitive space and footprint for aircraft, but also the idea of, of butts in seats and what it means for command selection and moving on up. Uh, unmanned, I think, has met more resistance there than perhaps in unmanned and surface. I think where there has been a warmer embrace, uh, unmanned underwater, there are some sensitivities regarding sub-safe uh, and operating uh, manned and unmanned platforms and similar water columns uh, that they're going to have to kind of move beyond and get to a comfort level. But I, I completely agree that we we need some place to go uh, and, and do this uh, a rapid advanced RDT uh, and prototyping for unmanned. Um, you know, uh, Rear Admiral Selby, Chief of Naval Research, has talked about the need for a Navy Futures Command, or as he calls it, Eight Fleet someplace where we can kind of let the horses run free to see how much we can get out of them. And, and the idea of actually creating a viable unmanned community so that we could avoid these overlaps between all these different communities and their different interests that perhaps we create an unmanned community, at least in a near term, to see just how much we can wring out of unmanned platforms and concepts of operation. So that's something actually I've been doing a little bit of thinking and writing on. Um, you know, over the last year, and I hope to continue to do so. So far as, um, you know, what went bad this year, I, I concur with Brian that the budget from the administration and this whole divest to invest uh, aspect or approach to thing went on a false assumption that we had time. Uh, and in fact, everybody from Phil Davidson to Aquilino to uh, CNO have said, hey, we don't have time. Uh, you know, we could be inside an event horizon right now for something that's really significant in the Western Pacific. So we have to get the fleet ready now. And, and I don't think that we've done enough of that. So far as the last bad thing, it's the deployment of the USS Ford is one of the bad things of this year. Uh, first of all, it wasn't a deployment. It never chopped operational. It was kept under U.S. Navy control, almost as if we were afraid to let uh, they, uh, you know, the ugly baby out of the crib and for everyone in the world to see. Uh, she did not operate for more than uh, 30, 32 days at sea. Uh, she's five years, uh, over five years since her commissioning. So 10% of this ship's life has been expended of a 50-year life. And the damn thing hasn't deployed yet uh, in operational setting. She did not meet her uh, sortie generation rate goals of her design. 
Uh, so we spent, you know, uh, 12.9 billion in actuality, over 15 billion dollars, nearly three times the amount we spent on the baseline Nimitz class aircraft carrier, and we didn't get anything additional out of it except some golly gee whiz electromagnetic BS. Uh, so this, to me, is a failed experiment, and uh, and not to mention we've shrunk the air wing from 92 aircraft to 64 because we've run out of money to buy airplanes to put on the deck of this super pristine platinum uh, plated uh, aircraft carrier. So, you know, I have some sensitivities as to the relevance of the aircraft carrier because of our lack of investment in the air wing, specifically UCAVs in the air wing. And yet I've got a Cadillac of a, of a pickup truck to haul them around in. I just don't have anything to haul. And the pickup seems to break down on the side of the road and need to pull into port for resupply and maintenance. So uh, I think the Ford kind of was an embarrassment uh, this year, uh, despite the, I mean, if we're going to go off of how the British view this, I mean, really, we're going to let the British view on, on uh, carrier design, uh, you know, sort of drive this. No, that, I think that was a bad news story in the overall. Hey, just to jump on uh, something that uh, Jerry mentioned, I'll uh, say that I agree with you that the, the naval aviation in general, the carrier air wing, but naval aviation in general has been an area that's kind of a disappointment this year. You know, we haven't seen as much innovation there as we probably need to. Uh, and you could do a lot more with the uh, naval aviation fleet if you just thought about maybe integrating it more between the land and sea-based aircraft brought in more unmanned aircraft, particularly shore-based ones, um, and maybe freed up the carrier from some of the multi-mission responsibilities that it has and put more strike fighters and tankers on it and just turn it into a big strike fighter platform uh, as opposed to making it this jack of all trades, master of none. Amen. On the on the bad part, I think I think Jerry just very eloquently expressed the, uh, the bah humbug view of the Gerald R. Ford uh, very strongly and good for you. Um, I do think there, there are other sides to it, though. But to, to piggyback on both of you on unmanned, uh, my, my big disappointment, really, um, aside from congressional log roadblocks that keep going up uh, on, on the development of unmanned, which I think are probably not the wisest thing in the world um, and, are, and are hindering development far more than helping it. I don't think Congress is helping this at all. I think they're really... The Navy, the Navy would be would be pushing forward far stronger in certain areas that at least I'm aware of, um, and they're not doing so because Congress keeps stop. Wait now, hold on now, wait a minute. We want you to do all this testing, you know, and, and it's and it's it's counterproductive. It's very counterproductive. Along those lines, there's something down uh, something down in um, in Alabama called the Appalach U.S. Uh, NS or almost Appalachicola which is EPF-13. This is, this is a um, expeditionary fast transport. It was fitted out at a, as a congressional ad, not a Navy request, as an unmanned vessel. It's, um, it's optionally manned. Uh, it's a whole system uh, developed by L3, installed by um, GDIT, and the ship is built by Austral USA. And they spent the summer and fall running a very, very extensive series of of trials. This is the largest unmanned ship by far the U.S. Navy's ever had to play with, if anybody anywhere. It's a, it, this is a large USV, L-U-S-V. They have run this ship um, autonomously. They've run it on multiple, multiple trials. They've done it in high sea traffic um, situations. Uh, they took it off uh, the coast of Florida. They went around the, actually as far as Miami that I know of. Um, off the coast of Miami and then back uh, up to Mobile, Alabama. 
Um, this system is in place. It is, was not a Navy requirement. It is, it is a gift. It was $50 million plus up from Congress. It's paid for. It exists. And there's no particular requirement for these ships. Congress keeps keeps appropriating them. It's a, it's a, it's a little port program, really. There's two of them that are laid up because there's nothing for them to do. Um, but uh, the ship right now is going to supposedly deliver to military sea lift command and just be a, they're going to uninstall all these systems. Let, let's just throw away the $50 million and it'll be a run-of-the-mill EPF. Um, that, I think that's a real missed opportunity. And apparently there's not money for it. There, there was no mention of it in the NDAA. And apparently um, and nobody has any, has, has any funding for this. I think it's a real shame. That's a, that's a, that, that's a gift horse that was just here. here. It's presented to you. You want to experiment with this stuff. This is a big boat. Um, play with it. And um, they're not going to do it. So I think um, the whole unmanned situation is a smorgasbord of opportunity and stuff that's going very far, very fast, especially in the air and uh, certainly underwater where what's the most classified. But uh, service vessels, this is, this is an opportunity that's not being taken up. I think it's a real shame. And I also will, will harp on the continued mis, uh, misconstruing, misstating by a Navy senior leadership of the state of the shipbuilding industry to meet demand. And this constant you know, explanation that, well, we can't order more ships because A, a, a it's expensive, true, true, but, but industry can't meet the demand and, and we can't do that. And uh, that until industry gets itself set, we can't do this stuff. Um, there's a word that starts with bull that, that is, is, uh, is the only response to that. It's simply not true. And uh, Chris and I have been down, down to see some of this uh, capacity that industry is very much uh, putting itself in position to meet demand or spin up um, to meet demand. There are certainly problems. Everything has problems. It's a complicated picture, but to use a broad stroke and simply say industry can't, no, that's not true. There are certainly parts of it where industry can't, absolutely. But to use it as a broad stroke, we can't do this, no. So that's that that continues to be a disappointment. I guess my bad would be a lack of vision uh, or articulated vision and leadership on the part of uh, the Navy flag wardroom and secretariat. I understand the budget lead follow with regard to the administration in charge. I, I, I got it. Uh, everybody on this call has either written about or worked for different CNOs and understands how you have to navigate those sometimes treacherous waters, but I don't know what the Navy wants to do. I, I really don't. And I, and I didn't see it. Not only do I not know what they want to do, but to Brian and Jerry's point, I, I didn't see them taking risk in areas that have potential to pay off. And I'm not talking about risk in terms of like spending billions of dollars. I'm talking about putting time and resources and doing things that like have high payoff in, in the future. I, I thought it was a wasted year, 22, to be quite honest, from uh, moving the ball forward for, for the Navy. So, I mean, that that would be my my bad. So I, I would just jump on that and say that, you know, I've been largely disappointed. You know, there's a an old verse, you know, without a vision, the people will perish. You know, without a strong articulated vision for where the service is going, then then we, you know, we, we're, we're set to aim wandlessly. And I think that's where we've been. Now, that being said, 
I was really impressed with the SECNAV's uh, speech at Columbia University on December 7th on Pearl Harbor Day. I thought that was an extremely strong statement and, in fact, was a break uh, with sort of uh, previous administration statements from the Secretary of Defense, DepSecDef. And so I thought, well, you know, uh, Carlos Del Toro is really stepping out here. And I tweeted it out to applaud him for doing that. But I also asked the question at the end of that sort of tweet string, which is, OK, now I look forward to seeing your budget. Um, so, you know, uh, great vision. Uh, now let's put some dollars and cents behind that uh, to be able to sort of articulate because he, he talked about hard issues. He talked about shipbuilding. Uh, he talked about ship repair. Uh, and to go back to what Chris just said, you know, the, the idea that industry, you know, has no excess capacity. Uh, I mean, there are some significant challenges with like manpower and trying to hire additional people. But the fact of the matter is, is there is capacity uh, and there's also greater efficiencies to be uh, done there. Uh, but uh, but I do believe that we could grow if if the Congress and the administration set a strong signal for year over year growth, that industry is able to you know project and adapt and 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 say that yeah we understand where this is coming from. Yeah, yeah I'll say we we've seen uh, some good investments on the part of the the government in the shipbuilding industrial base, particularly like the submarine industrial base. Um, that are trying to shore up pieces that are, you know, probably a single source or, or weak. But uh, to Jerry's point, we just haven't seen a demand signal um, across the board that would really incentivize industry to put their own money against um, some of this capacity uh, improvement. Um, and I think one other area that, you know, the there's also a lacking demand signal is in the mission systems. So when it comes to these unmanned platforms, uh, talking to people who are actually fielding and, and operating them, um, there just aren't the mission systems put on them. One of the reasons they don't go experiment is because there's no sonar system put on it. There's no radar. There's no electronic warfare system uh, because they get a one-off, they go test it and they send it back. Um, so I think there's a demand signal there because industry could be creating those in large numbers if they just got uh, the orders or at least the indication that there'd be orders for them. But they look at the landscape and say, it's, there's nothing happening very fast. Why should I invest my IRAD uh, in you know, pursuing a technology or at least a capacity that would help? So in the time that we have left, um, let, let's talk about the other. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, what, what are you looking forward to uh, in 23, whether it's the first quarter or, you know, big, big picture will, will occur? Uh, Jerry, I'll start with you. So I will tell you the thing I'm looking forward to in great anticipation um, is uh, apparently Trent Kelly of uh, Mississippi is taking Sea Power Subcommittee. Um, and he is a retired adjutant general of the Mississippi National Guard. He, his district is not a shipbuilding district. And so this will be the first time that we've had a chairman of Sea Power who isn't intrinsically tied uh, to, to shipbuilding. He, he, he really doesn't have a dog in the fight. And in fact, he's actually publicly said that, hey, look, I'm not the congressman from Huntington Ingalls. That's the other guy downstate. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this land power National Guard guy steps in. He clearly wants the job. You know, he had other opportunities, but this is the one that he wanted. And so I'm, I'm really curious as to how he steps up and leads with the Republican majority in the House and what that will mean for us. There's going to be a lot of homework there, uh, but there might be a fresh take on things like unmanned, for instance, uh, because he's stepping in kind of without preconceived notions or sort of deep-seated uh, biases already present there. And then we'll see again where Carlos del Toro goes this year as Secretary of the Navy following this speech on December 7th, whether it follows through with a sort of a dramatic budget or public conversation with the Congress when he comes up to testify in the spring, and where he goes, you know, with, with critical things like unmanned, and whether the Gerald R. Ford gets underway again this year at all. Brian. 
Uh, yeah, I agree with Jerry. I think Congress is going to be a source of uh, a lot of new thinking and uh, energy. I mean, you've got uh, Senator Wicker taking over as ranking member on the SASC, uh, clearly a guy with a sea power uh, perspective. I did an event with him this week, and he talked about the fact that they are going to push to continue building existing ships. So let's get out of this idea of divestment to invest. Let's invest in what we have today until that next generation of capability is available. Um, and also, I think Trent Kelly is going to be really, you know, a new you know, look at, at sea power. And I think that'll be helpful to get somebody in there to maybe push some of these new technologies that guys that come from traditional shipbuilding districts may not be as interested in. Um, I think also, you know, from the you know Navy side, obviously they're, they're kind of hemmed in, I think, by what the administration is likely to give them in terms of a top line. Um, but I do think there's going to be this renewed emphasis or continued emphasis on readiness uh, which I don't think is bad, but I think um, you know maybe in concert with the Congress, they can come up with a way to make the kinds of investments in the shipyard industrial base, both private and public, that would help us to you know maybe make it so that more of the fleet is actually available. I mean, we've got a third of our submarine force sitting in some kind of maintenance availability now. Um, it's not that much better across the board. Um, so we need to you know have that capacity. So I think there's going to be some energy behind let's invest in the readiness side of the Navy because it's gone too long without really having any dedicated money spent against it. So I think those are a couple areas to look at. And I guess the last thing is bring you know, the unmanned system back back to it. There's going to be, you know, at least from what I'm seeing, uh, a lot more um, energy behind uh, let's get unmanned systems out there faster. So you see the Task Force 59 effort going on in CENTCOM. They're trying to do a similar thing down in Fourth Fleet for um, the Caribbean and South America, Latin America. Um, they're not going to take that model to the Pacific just because of the challenges with a contested environment out there. But I do think you're going to see a lot more effort to try to advance those unmanned systems into the field more quickly. So I'll jump in and then I'll let Chris close it out. I, I'm looking forward to two things, uh, big picture. One, I'm looking forward to the stand-up of the Naval Commission. I, I think this is important in terms of raising issues both at the congressional but also at the national level um, to make these issues more relevant to a broader audience and to provide the oversight that's been missing uh, in the last couple of years. And then second, I, I'm looking forward to a new CNO new energy, whether it is Lisa Franchetti or Sam Paparo, a renewed energy and a renewed vision uh, will be um, a welcome change to what we've had for the last four years. Chris. Yeah, well, of course, we're also um, probably going to get a new commandant, Marine Corps commandant as well. So that that, that is definitely going to change the dynamic of all that discussion. Um, the big things I'm looking for in, in this year, aside from what's already been said, um, Flight 3 Destroyer focus is going to, going to really um, start start up. The, the first ship, Jack H. Lucas, just left for initial sea trials. The ship itself is one thing. This is out of uh, English Shipbuilding in Pascola. Um, she's going to do her own trials, but the combat system, it's a new combat system. It's a new radar, uh, actually rather, integrated in the existing Aegis system. So the new radar is Raytheon Spy 6 radar into Lockheed Martin's uh, Aegis system. This is the first new radar in, the, in this system in what, 30 years, 40 years, 50, 50 years. It's been a long time. Um, this is a major change. It is the future uh, that this various versions of that radar are gonna go on multiple um, types of ships. Uh, the focus will really turn on is Raytheon performing. Um, can, they, can they deliver on this radar? But uh, that will be a big thing, and that, that is likely to be the service combatant the U.S. Navy is going to be building for the next 15 years as DDGX gets pushed further out uh, to pay for other priorities. And the other thing to look for is in China, 
And what what will the Chinese, obviously here the Chinese Navy, but but the Chinese in general, be doing? How how will they be adjusting to their lessons learned from the Ukraine war? Um, they are clearly not impressed with their ally, the, the Russians, um, although they operate with them. Um, some of the comments I've heard from people out in the Pacific are really interesting in, in terms of the the way they they they, they view each other. Um, you know, we're looking at lessons learned from Ukraine war. Obviously, the Chinese are doing exactly the same thing. And what do they what do they derive from that, both in terms of being more aggressive and maybe looking at areas where they where they are, are more concerned? But we'll have to be reading, um, figuring that stuff out throughout the year. So I think that'll do it. Um, folks, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I really appreciate both of you taking the time to do this. There is a lot going on. There's a lot that's going to happen. Uh, it bears watching all this stuff, worldwide developments inside the Beltway, on the hill, um, across the seas, in the air, under the water. Uh, but um, it, it really is a, a truly a, a, a dynamic time, to say the least. So thanks to our guest, um, very noted naval analysts and commentators, Brian Clark and Jerry Hendricks. Brian and Jerry, thank you very much for being on the pod again. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on what seems like a deep-rooted lack of urgency among those who should know better. Thanks, Chris. Building on the comments in our last segment, as well as the submarine story out yesterday from USNI, I again find myself asking, when is Congress, DOD, and industry all going to stop squandering the most important resource in this great power competition, the resource of time. Kudos to Congress for the work and resourcing that went into the National Defense Authorization Act, in spite of the services not helping them help themselves. That said, preparing for potential conflicts with China is about more than just mandating and funding proven technology. Members and their staffs needs to be willing to push the limits of what's previously been fielded or what's available through prime vendors. Every unnecessary study or test site wastes time we don't have. Speaking of wasting time, there is a reason Congress authorizes long lead procurement. And when vendors and the services give away that time, we are less prepared to compete with adversaries like China. Every current and former Indo-PACOM or Pacific Fleet commander will tell you that we need more and better submarines in the Pacific yesterday. So the idea that we are losing time as we dicker around over insurance seems utterly foolish. We need to be doing everything in our power to build authorized and appropriated ships, aircraft, and weapon systems as fast as possible. The days of re-wickering mature designs, wasting resources on class-wide ship or aircraft fixes because key components don't work has to be something of the past. Time is not our friend when it comes to staying ahead, or in some cases, catching up to the Chinese. As I think about what I want for Christmas this year, it's not more DDGs, F-18s, or N-strength, although those would be nice. What I would like is for national security leaders to have a better appreciation of time. More money, greater authorities, and new platforms are nice, but unless they come at the right time and are put in the right place, they are simply meaningless. Amen, brother. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. 
Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>